everyone. I'm Audio Nerd 64. And I am Big Nakuma. And we are your game, my friend. Wow. Thank you. Logging on, we got Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, Hitman 3, Cyber Shadow, PogChamp, Lucasfilm Games, Cyberpunk 2077, Microsoft Live Gold, and Vicarious Visions. These past two weeks in Nerdum, we're talking Ray Fisher, Wonder Woman, Batman, Batman Beyond, She-Hulk, and WandaVision. Look at that nice even even spread between Marvel and DC. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, 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 Mm -hmm. beautiful. And in the party chat, we're talking to Paolo Pettuccini, the mastermind behind Democratic Socialism Simulator. Ooh. Painfully on brand for us. Extremely. Um, Let's jump in. Yes. Logging on, we have some releases. Scott Pilgrim versus the World, the complete edition. Uh, It's out. People really like this one. Yep, I uh, am not into side scrollers as is well known. So you do, um, hate, you do hate them. Yeah, and also Scott Pilgrim is not like it's just not a cultural touchstone for me. You like the movie? It was a fine movie. Wow, where where are you going to play Hitman Three? Yes, Hitman Three also came out, and yes, I will play it. However, because Hitman and Hitman Two ended up free. Well, actually, him. I'm waiting on Hitman 2. Hitman 2 hasn't come out for free yet, right? Um, Not that I know of. I don't think so. Probably soon, now that Hitman 3 is out. Well, yeah. What I'm excited about is if you buy Hitman 3 and you own all the other levels from Hitman and Hitman 2, you can play them all in Hitman 3. It works perfectly on Xbox. It works with a little bit of maneuvering on PlayStation Mm. and it doesn't currently work on PC, but it is going to (laughs) eventually they're going to patch it in. Um, It's it's because they switched over from steam. It's an Epic exclusive game on PC, which, you know, is thrilling so many people, but um, as it always does. Yeah. It's going to be fixed. Uh, All I'm hearing is that these are the best maps ever. Oh, and if you know Hitman, you're walking around and assassinating people on these big, elaborate maps, and yes. it's really fun. It mm. is very punishing, mm. so some people might not find it as fun. I was not. Cause it's it's not like you can like fuck up and then try to fix it. No, you fuck up and then you've you been made. Have, you've been made. It's, it's a wipe. It's a wipe. Yeah, I love it though. It it's a lot of fun. <sighs> Uh, maybe I'll try it. I'll try this third one. Maybe it's a hundred percent on my list. Uh, and the storyline carried through, like there's a storyline from one to two to three and it wraps up in three. I've heard it's very satisfying. So definitely on my list. Have fun with that. Thank you. Cyber shadow also came out. It is another 2d side scroller in the vein of like shovel Knight, I guess you could say, Mm -hmm. um, people, we're very excited for this. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about it. Again, I am not a side scroller person, and so do we need a side scroller correspondent for the show? We probably do. I mean, so many of them are side scrollers. <laughs> uh, what is it about side scrollers that you don't like? Let's get to the I bottom of this. I just don't like platforming all that much. I don't find oh, that no. very interesting. I just don't find it. Very, I like moving around in a 3D world. I think that's really what it comes down to. That's uh, open world games are by far my favorite um, overall genre, and I think it's just because of the freedom of it. Did you not play Mario as a kid? Like what? I did, but it. But you know what I loved more? Mario 64. <laughs> like <laughs> you just never looked back. That's you know. I. That's really when I started. Um. I don't know. I'm I'm not old enough where Super Mario was like my bread and butter. It was a game that I played 
it wasn't the latest, greatest, best when I was uh, interested in gaming. Fair. So. I guess we can forgive it. I don't know. Yeah. (sighs) Next up, some racism. Oh, we love racism. Love to see some racism. Mm. (sighs) So, for some background, the PogChamp emote Mm. is streamer Gutex. Mm -hmm. Gutex, that's how it's pronounced. And he's a fascist. So, we've learned. uh, He tweeted some things about the January 6th. Well... I guess insurrection to some people for other people was a revolution. Mm. <sighs> God damn it. I'm just thinking about that Animating little kid. Hacks. Oh, the little and kid. The anime, and the anime. <laughs> that, that's right, too. That's Links right. in the show notes. Yeah. So he said some very not great things. And Twitch was like, well, I guess we're taking away that, along with Donald Trump's access to Twitch. It was mm-hmm. a fun time. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead, uh, they have decided to make the PogChamp emote a different streamer for each day. Which sounds... Well, past tense. Well, past now. tense. Yeah, at this point. Uh, which uh, was cute. Maybe an idea. Maybe, you know. It was cute the same way that the KFC icons were cute in theory. Yes. So uh, naturally, uh, led to a lot of harassment on Twitch. Yeah. Specifically, they picked POC people yes and they were harassed endlessly when it was their turn yeah so now they're doing like animals oh as the pog champ emote um disney it up over here that's yeah (laughs) dealing with poc is a little hard so let's just make them animals i just can't believe that they um didn't foresee the racism of their community i mean the kfc thing was like come on y'all and then also like in the context, of, maybe if the KFC thing didn't happen, sure. But the KFC thing did happen. And, you know, I guess from our context, the KFC thing was a KFC chicken emote that was related to uh, PUBG, Winner Winner Chicken Dinner, uh, that was also used in racist ways to yeah. shocking no one. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I just. <sighs> Uh, lesson learned, I hope. I just hate that it's always at the expense of... There's no lesson learned. It's Twitch. Wow. And, you know, I, I just feel bad. Critical Bard was the first person that they selected. And I think that he has finally unlocked his Twitter account again. But oh, it went from being a very celebratory thing to very really quickly. bad really fast. Um, so, fuck Twitch. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. I just feel like all the POC creators are constantly complaining about how awful they are about handling these types of things. And yet they don't really have that many options because even if you wanted to go over to another platform, there's no guarantee that they're not just get mixered, you know? Yeah. So um It's a shitty situation. It is a really shitty situation, and I'm I'm sorry that people are having to deal with it. Yeah. So in a galaxy. Very close to here. Not not very far away. Star Wars games are no longer going to be exclusively done by EA Games. Lucasfilm Games is coming. Yeah, they announced Lucasfilm Games, and then we heard that Ubisoft Studio Massive, which makes The Division 2, um, is actually going to be developing an open-world Star Wars game, which is our first hint that exclusivity was going away. Like, Lucasfilm Games could have just been something that Disney put together to manage all the EA properties, but now we know 100% that EA is no longer the exclusive maker of Star Wars games. Uh, Disney put out a statement and was like, oh, it doesn't mean that we're not going to work with EA in the future. We love EA. It's been a great partnership. And there's other partners that we could be working (laughs) with, too. There's more money we could be making. Yeah, I... I think this is a really good thing. I'm excited for Star Wars games in general. Um, I'm really excited for the Division 2 folks to be making an open world Star Wars game. Uh, Yes, please. But it was more than that. Like Lucasfilm is technically the proprietor of Indiana Jones. And we found out that Bethesda is making an Indiana Jones game. uh, And Todd is going to be the executive producer. (laughs) So... 
Given his recent track record, I don't know who's excited. I'm more like, what's your plan, Todd? <laughs> I just like hate that we could just call him Todd and that I have his face because he had to do so much talking mm. about Fallout. Poor Todd. Poor Todd. Mm. Well, you know, here's hoping that you know this would be good. I I would I would play an Indiana Jones game, I guess. Yeah, we'll see. I, I would I would I would like to see it before. <laughs> I guess my only hesitation is like, well, Uncharted exists, so like, what are you guys gonna do differently? But yeah, and Tomb Raider. I mean, here's oh, here's yeah. the other rub. It's probably gonna be Xbox exclusive because of Xbox buying. That's right. Ooh. But who knows? It's Lucasfilm, and so it's possible that Disney was like, no, we want to make the maximum possible amount of money. And if they didn't, then a PlayStation person would just be like, okay, I'm going to just stick with Uncharted then. You know? (laughs) I feel like it's going to scratch your itch. Yeah. Um, But we'll see what kind of game it is. Who knows? We, We don't really know anything about it. Cyberpunk 2077 it continues to be in the news. Um, things have just devolved since we last spoke about it. They're getting sued by folks in the United States. They're mm-hmm. potentially getting sued by folks in Poland. The Polish government is investigating them because apparently they gave CD Projekt Red money. money? And they, like, (laughs) fucked up so bad the Polish government would like to get a return on that money on the order of 10% of their overall revenue for last year if they are found to be in violation. Lord. That would be a much bigger hit than all of the refunds. Yeah. That's huge. Well, apparently, even with all the refunds, it still made the most money a game has ever made ever. So, I guess... Well, for now. For now. On launch. Right. Because I think GTA V is still the best-selling game ever. Of all time. Yeah. Um, but, like, it's not just that they're getting sued and that they're under investigation and that the gaming world still kind of hates them. The... CEO or the director. I honestly I don't I'm not really sure what his title is. I'm not even gonna try to pronounce his name because it's Polish. He released something in English that was a huge mea culpa apology, except he lied throughout the whole thing. They basically tried yeah. to say that they weren't aware of how bad it was. And days later, Jason Schreier, because of course it was Jason Schreier, <laughs> released his <laughs> full-on expose where he talked to 20 developers, and they were basically like, listen. This shit has been going on for a long time in terms of crunch, A, which if I had known that beforehand definitively in this way, I would have never even fucking played the game and I would have been right to. Mm. (laughs) I wouldn't have missed much of anything. Uh, Second of all, the playthrough that they showed at E3, fake. It was just not reflective of real work. It was all like things that they wanted to do mm-hmm. and they really didn't start working on it until 2016. It's just all over again. Sorry for the bleep. I mean, yeah, that's really the only way to put it. They're like, okay, here's like this grand idea. We're going to change the world. This is going to be the game of a generation. And then it wasn't. So. At least them worked. <laughs> it did work. It was fun for, yeah. for a little bit, for like a few days. Ugh. This this big old patch, the first patch of 2021, and this very nebulous, unspecific roadmap that they've given us uh, fucked up the game. Mostly for PC people. So, that sucks. Yeah, I don't think that's true. Um, it is for everyone because oh, Optimal uh, got his game nuked. He was not past a certain mission and if you're not past it uh the patch nukes your game so wow it's it's not just pc people it is universal it's really bad they just continually I, i i feel i feel terrible for the devs because it it's just a bad situation that's getting worse yeah uh let's see microsoft live gold almost basically doubled their prices and then very quickly was like, oh, no, we're not. Thanks to Gamer Backlash. 
bullying works. Bullying did work. <laughs> yeah, because they said, we're actually not going to raise the price. And you're right. The free-to-play games should be free even through Xbox Live Gold. So, If anything, you, you might have made money because if you're the type of person <laughs> who's playing a free-to-play game and having to pay for Xbox Live Gold in order to be online for it, you just won. Like you not, now you don't have to pay anything. Microsoft gave us money. Basically. I mean, gave the game. Basically. <laughs> that was wild. Though. I kind of was like, like when I first saw the news, I was like, oh, okay, they're raising the prices. They're just going to get everyone to ultimate, which makes sense because like, if you want to have every game on ultimate, it makes sense for you to tell studios. Is that many people we have on ultimate? Right. And then people with gold were like, I'm not moving to ultimate. Fuck this. Now I'm going to tweet about it and go on Reddit. And then Microsoft was like, all right, it just seemed really money hungry because yeah, you would have ended up paying less for Ultimate yeah. than the new price. Yeah. But the old price of Live Gold is less than Ultimate. Right. So, like, that's yeah. <laughs> clearly they were just trying to force people <laughs> into Ultimate, which comes with Live Gold. Right. But um, they weren't having it. And a lot of people pointed out oh, well, fuck you. I can just move over to PlayStation because I haven't bought a next-gen console yet because I haven't been able to. Right. So I'm going to go to the one where I don't have to pay for free games anyway. That's right. Um, And they real... It was 24 hours, right? It was less than... I think it was less than... I remember, like, I feel like I woke up, saw that news, and was like, oh, they're on some bullshit. And then by the time I went to bed, they were like, I don't know, I'm so sorry, we're so sorry. Maybe it wasn't uh, that quick, but... I think that they released the statement in the afternoon and then the mor- the next morning it was, oh, JK, good for Microsoft. Shame on you for attempting. They really were like, they really tried it. It's not, and they, we, the community said, you have too much to dip on that ship. <laughs> and that dip much. is specifically discounted three months. <laughs> you could always find it. You could always find it cheaper somewhere. <laughs> oh, man. So our final story is a little personal to me, not literally, but uh, Vicarious Visions is a studio that I've come to really respect over the last few years. They have been helping uh, Bungie on Destiny 2 for a while Mm. and actually put in some really great content. A lot of the best content when we were most upset with the state of Destiny 2 was the, the direct contribution of vicarious visions Mm -hmm. they've since done some other really incredible projects most recently the impeccable remake of tony hawk pro skater one and two award-winning yes everyone loved it um i still haven't played it but you know i'm you know sports so (laughs) i just i've i've heard only wonderful things and then they got bought by blizzard and everyone was kind of upset because they were like, oh, fuck, this really talented studio just got bought by this behemoth. And now they're kind of, you know, maybe they'll even get disassembled. People mm-hmm. were pretty upset at that initial news. Yeah. And then further news broke that actually they got hired because they're working on the Diablo 2 remake, which was at least news to me that mm-hmm. it was happening. Uh, and they're replacing like the main blizzard team, the blizzard team uh, internally had like a core team. Um, I forget the name of it. And they were responsible for the disaster. That was the Warcraft remake. Got it. That was worse than yeah. the original release. And so they got like disbanded internally and sent around the, the studios and, and stuff like that. So vicarious visions is replacing them. And I'm excited about this. Uh, because of the opportunity, I think Diablo 2 is one of the best games I've ever played. Uh, I just, it, it's very nostalgic. Mm-hmm. I really, really miss it sometimes when I was like playing Diablo 3. Mm-hmm. So I'm excited for this to be redone and really excited for it to be redone by Vicarious Visions. So is Diablo the only devil game that you play? Yes, hundred percent. It's the only? only devil game that I play because it's it's like devil light. It's not that. It's never that bad. <laughs> like it's definitely like the new one. I'm like, oh, that looks like the devil. But, <laughs> but <laughs> I mean, you literally are fighting the devil. I don't know. It, it's hard to explain. Diablo for some reason doesn't make me. Some of them make me sick. Like I just get a little like sick to my stomach. Mm. But. 
kudos to Vicarious Visions. Hopefully this is a successful and positive move and that our initial concerns are not valid. All right. In these past few weeks in nerddom, a lot of drama over at Warner Brothers. Yes, we support Ray Fisher on this podcast. Yes, we do. Down with drama, down with racism, and down with Joss Whedon. (laughs) Uh, So if you need a refresher, uh, Ray Fisher demanded an investigation for the set of Justice League, mainly against uh, Joss Whedon, and has since alleged that Warner Brothers has swept everything underneath the rug. Specifically the creative director, who the Kevin Feige of the DC, whatever it's called. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the whoever of the whatever over there. It's perfect. <laughs> uh, so since then, Warner Brothers was like, all right, I guess we're taking you. Well, allegedly, we're taking you out of the flash. And Ray Fisher was like, okay, bet uh, this Justice League thing that we're doing with Zack Snyder is the last thing that I'm going to do. And then it's over. Not shocking. Not surprised. Uh, always disappointed. We haven't heard any real substance from his co-stars as of yet. I mean, like, I think that they're all, you know, supporting him. I, I think that they all agree that bad things were going on, but it's hard to judge what really happened because we don't know all the details and we don't know how much the other actors were exposed to that. Either way, I mean, I would say it's pretty disappointing that they haven't been more active. Yeah. A lot of, lot of noise for release to Snyder Cut, but not a lot of noise for Ray Fisher, which... Mm-hmm. <sighs> anyway. Um, there was also some news that Michael Keaton is going to be officially taking over as Batman, which led to speculation that they were moving in a Batman Beyond direction, because what the fuck sense does that make? <laughs> I think that, you know, it might not mean very much. They, It, it might just be, like, Flashpoint that he takes over maybe yeah you know ben affleck dies in flashpoint or something i don't fucking know um but then they did kind of say that maybe they were thinking about a batman beyond reprisal but it's not clear if that's animated or live action so who knows what's going on over there when it comes out it comes out Mm -hmm. that's kind of it's too much i don't we'll we'll have to see (laughs) i'm i'm not sure Speaking of, we've been watching Batman Beyond, and it's pretty good. There's definitely some episodes that are not very engaging, but like it's better than I remember it. Yeah. Definitely holds up. It used to be like the highlight of my childhood. It's a classic for a reason. Mm -hmm. Theme song slaps. Forever. Forever. Um, We also watched Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman 1984. And Wonder Woman was better than I was expecting it to be. And Wonder Woman 1984 was worse than I could have possibly imagined. And yet, all that said, it's still the best part of the DC universe, <laughs> which is sad. The first one, I think, was a, just a solid movie. Yeah. It really was a solid movie. The second one, it... Oh, boy. It was a disaster. There are so many, like, we're so late to the party on talking about how not great this movie was. Um, I don't think that we'll say anything insightful no. about it. Um, other than that, in just in terms of continuity, it doesn't make any fucking sense. Like, nope. so she learned how to fly, but then forgot later on. Uh, the entire world was exposed to her voice, and yet Batman supposedly didn't know who she was. Um, it's I, almost like... What universe? What, <laughs> right? What's the What's the point? She just make shit invisible now. You'll also be able to see people through the invisible jet. God damn it! <laughs> he was really upset. About I was that. because it's it's you know. Look, I'm not a big stickler for comic accuracy, but if you're gonna pull out, oh, I've just been randomly learning how to make things invisible, and now I'm gonna make this whole ship, this whole airplane invisible because you know I work on a coffee mug. What the mm. fuck? Shut up. This is stupid. The action scenes also not the greatest. Um, (laughs) The end fight scene was just awful, I have to say. dark. It was like that Game of Thrones episode. (laughs) (laughs) Also, the saving the Palestinian children thing, I mean, it was Egyptian. But still, really fucked up considering her, like her her specific situation. It was just such a weird, it was all, I remember just like, 
also thinking it was such a weird way to end that encounter. Yes. It was also just really poorly shot. Like you could tell that the children were dummies at one point in a very obvious way. Yeah, and it was just, it, I kind of couldn't believe it. We watched it three times that, that end scene thing, because it was just so remarkably bad. Um, I, I think also the reason why people are harping on how bad it was is because it could have been much better if the script wasn't all over the place. It was just extremely long for no reason. Barely anything happened. And it, it could have been executed so much more effect, more effectively. Yeah. It's a shame, though, because literally everyone in the movie, besides Gal Gadot, gave really good performances. Yes, I I did think that Kirsten Wig was giving a performance in that so movie. So it's Pedro. Yes, he was he was pretty good. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that's that's definitely not. We're not watching that one again. Yeah, wouldn't but- be worth a ticket to a movie theater if we could go. <laughs> to the Thanks movie to HBO Max, we're able to catch up on all these things without having to pay for them. Ugh. Um, moving on to much greener pastures. I hate that. In the MCU, there are some rumors around the She-Hulk television show that we wanted to talk about. These aren't specifically casting rumors, and so they count. Uh, It is possible that the Netflix defenders are being brought back and that they will be cameoing or co-starring or something in She-Hulk. I just thought it was just... uh... Kristen Ryder as Jessica Jones would be reprising her role. Uh, I didn't that, realize it was a whole... Well, it's a rumor, and it also extends to Daredevil and to a few other people. That makes sense for Daredevil, just because they're lawyers. But that's the only... Well, it makes sense for all of them. I guess. Because She-Hulk, for... I mean, before she was a big A-list Avenger, wasn't she basically just, like, <laughs> on that rung <laughs> of the ladder? <laughs> I guess so. Like, there was talk about getting a She-Hulk TV show back when it was on the Netflix and integrating her into the universe that way. Oh, I didn't realize that. Mm. I missed that. Well, I mean, it was also... I mean, t- who knows what Kevin Feige was thinking, but that was Man. the internet talk. A legend. I would be very excited about this. I I just love the idea of bringing those actors back. I'm of the opinion that pretty much all the actors were really, really good and fit the roles really well. It's just the writing wasn't that great for for the shows. Um, oh yeah, no, they were perfectly cast. Yeah. And bring back the choreographer for the daredevil fight scenes. Specifically. specifically. Yes. Specifically. The specifically. <laughs> bring back whoever, chore- whoever choreographed that 11 minute one shot scene in season two. Specifically. Everyone else can stay the fuck home. Yeah. Um, finally. WandaVision is out. It is. We have watched all three available episodes. Yes. I am deep into speculation mode about what is going on. I'm not. And and you're not. I'm just here for the ride. I was expecting to have a thought partner in this. No. And he's not. Well, because like it's it finally we're getting into weird Marvel shit. And like I kind of know what's going on because I like vaguely remember House of M's storyline way back when. This has been a long time since I've read that. But uh, I I just want to be surprised. I'm like, I want to watch it like, you know, like regular TV. Like, you know, you watch it. You don't know what's going to happen, but you're sitting there guessing. You're like, ooh, what clues? You know, you just enjoy you just enjoy the performances. If Wanda Maximoff was written better, I would have realized that Elizabeth Olsen can act <laughs> three movies ago. Holy shit. She's the killing it. The show is really good. It's really good. I grew up on like Nick at Night, TV Land, yeah. that type of shit. I'm very familiar with all these tropes. They have it down. They nailed it. They're they completely nailing it. nail it. It's great. I I love the direction of this. I love um, what they're going for. I expect that a lot of people are not going to love what they're going for. Mm. They're really leaning. Like, I would be very curious for people that don't like WandaVision um, how they feel about Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I'm becoming increasingly concerned about it because while watching WandaVision, I'm realizing is a 30 minute like action focused show going to work? And if Falcon and the Winter Soldier is not an action oriented show, then what the fuck is it going to be? I don't know. 
I uh, I'm very curious about it. I bet that there's not going to be very much action in one division at all. Maybe not. Why would there need to be? I'm, I'm sure the final episode's going to have some kind of something, but yeah. um, I'll save everyone my speculation. Uh, <laughs> have to do a, a post mortem after this. We will absolutely be doing a spoiler. Yeah, I guess we have to because there's no Cause MCU movie, so we have MCU. to fill in those yes. bonus episodes with something. Mm-hmm. Huh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If Black Widow doesn't get delayed again, because it is potentially getting delayed again, and of course it will be getting delayed, but if it doesn't get delayed, <sighs> then I think that means that we only have like what four weeks without MCU stuff this year. That's wild. Also, hashtag put Black Widow on Disney Plus. Just fucking put it on we're Disney not, Plus. No one, we're not all getting vaccines. I mean, I still feel like I'm gonna be in this apartment next year. Like if I'm keeping it above. Mm-hmm. Honestly, there was a <laughs> bunch of articles that came out today about how well uh, Soul did on Disney Plus and how it like broke a ton of streaming records and stuff. Why not? Like, Just do what you did with Mulan. I'm happy to pay $30 on top of my $10 to watch Black Widow in my pajamas at home over and over again. Yeah. Because that is, I would watch it several times. If I had to pay $30. You got to get your money's worth on something like that. I mean, Just do what you did for Mulan. Charge the $30. I'm happy to pay that for Black Widow. And uh, we'll call it a day. No. And I won't get coronavirus. I won't get coronavirus. I can come up with a recipe for a Black Widow cocktail. Okay. I'm sure someone has made oh, okay. one. Okay. 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 At home. Okay. <laughs> I think it's time for you to drop some music. You don't want to? No. I think it's time for you to drop some Theorize music. About what I think it's time for you to drop some music. Asian salad? Nope. Salmon salad? No. Nope. No. Crunchy? Crunch, crunch. We have a very special treat for you this week, gamer friends. We do. Uh, friend of the show, Paolo Pettercini is here, the creator of Democratic Socialism Simulator, which I've talked about a few times, but we haven't really done a deep dive into it. And uh, who better to do a deep dive with than the person that made it? I can't think of anyone better, actually. It's the perfect <laughs> person. Uh, welcome to the show, Paolo. Thank you very much for being here. All right. Thank you for having me. Uh, you're very welcome. We're, we're very excited about this. Um, I want to first brag and say that I have played the game dozens of times. I've only <laughs> been forcefully moved from power once, and I have actually managed to keep a supermajority in Congress and, and get people power all the way up and environmental stuff all the way down. So I feel like I've beaten the game. That's that's great. Oh. <laughs> yeah. you know, half of the people that, that say that it's way too hard and uh, the other half that says that it's way too easy. You just have to know who to strategically throw under the bus, you know, to get to get a, to get a few of those capitalists <laughs> to vote your way. Um, anyway, I, I would love to start out just about you and the overall project of La Mole Industria. Like, it, it is just a really incredible socialist gaming project that I think more people need to know about. It started a long time ago, you know, in uh, 2003. And uh, it was a bit of an extension of the kind of work uh, I was doing or the kind of, I guess, hobbies because it was a, almost a kid at that point. Mm-hmm. Meaning that uh, it started as a kind of like a spin-off of a campaign that I was making, like a web campaign, uh, essentially making uh, games for a referendum uh, uh, back in Italy where I grew up. And uh, I kind of like like the idea of using games as a sort of like a content, uh, somewhat viral content and political content for uh, um, kind of like propaganda, um, agitprop, uh, also like more critically uh, to, you know, reflect about games themselves, especially considering the fact that, you know, like uh, think about it, like in the early 2000s, there was no real independent game scene. Uh, the idea of making uh, personal or political games was uh, very exotic at that point. 
And the idea was to radicalize that field that was uh, mm-hmm. um, essentially dominated by militaristic, uh, you know, capitalistic uh, ideology, pretty much, and sexist ideology, pretty much completely. The thinking was like, uh, oh, there are plenty of, you know, like independent and, and interesting and socially engaged uh, bands uh, or like comics uh, and obviously like novels, uh, not to mention, you know, movies. But there's not much going on in games. And so that was the, the starting point, essentially. What do you think the impact of your work has been? And do you think overall that the gaming industry has gotten a little bit better about talking about these issues? Um, I, I, I think that Watch Dogs Legion, Cyberpunk, both being AAA titles that are essentially talking about future dystopian fascist regimes, you know, it's, that's a step, but I don't know if it's necessarily progress pending, you know, what they're actually saying and doing with, with that work. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I don't know if the, my personal parameter of success is having, you know, AAA games that are some kind of um, vaguely political or vaguely social aware. I don't care too much about that. My yeah, like my my point was just uh, um, this is more like a, a an alternative uh, sort of uh, vision, and it's a bit of an antidote to what you might get in triple uh, A entertainment. So like the idea is like you maybe you you play a small you know a small game, and that might make you think more critically about you know the bigger games that maybe you spend like a million hours uh, on. I don't don't necessarily care about that kind of model of change that or oh, oh, maybe like some independent uh, games can uh, uh, prefigure uh, you know AAA and then uh, you really achieve change when you have uh, big budget games uh, essentially like uh, on board uh, or like caring about you know the world. Um, I think it's one of the potential effects, but it's not uh, the, the one I'm I'm the most interested in. Mm-hmm. One of the old papers that you put up on your website, which we'll link in the show notes, um, I found to be really fascinating. It's titled Gaming Under Socialism. And it's something that, you know, I personally think about quite a bit. You know, what would <laughs> what would happen? What would the changes be? And I've gotten into arguments with people about this. Um, I would just love to hear your thoughts about what, in your perspective, gaming under socialism would look like. What what are the major changes that you would see or do you not think that we would see um, if if capitalism were to be overthrown in our lifetimes? Well, uh, yeah, you know, it kind of started a bit as a joke. I actually started from a joke uh, from uh, one of your podcast colleagues, uh, uh, Chapo Tra- Trap House, at some point as a, you know, a throwaway joke. They're, they're talking about like, uh, oh, what can socialism do for gamers, gamers' rights, right? And they're obviously just kind of like making fun of the gamers', gamers rights or gamer gay stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but actually, I think it's a completely like legitimate question because uh, um, we don't really have that many you know examples or models of essentially like social or social so- socialist or socialistic economic regimes uh, that are also you know advanced economies uh, you know like advanced in the in the sense of like you know with a lot of like knowledge com- you know knowledge workers semiotic workers uh, the kind of stuff that you know like games uh, are uh, a part of mm-hmm. and so yeah the the as it's more like a, a post that kind of like a long post kind of like goes through um you know a, a bunch of I think issues uh, from uh, you know crunch times to what would mean to to have basically companies being owned and democratically controlled by workers, by the developers, and also the relationship between you know that and the independent movement. Meaning, independent games are already a kind of like a glimpse of a socialist future, and they are a bit of a reaction to. I think I always framed the independent movement as a as a reaction to also to working condition under you know industrial uh, game development. Um, yeah, so like there's, there's a lot, I, you probably should read, read some of it. I wrote it like a couple of years <laughs> ago. I, I totally forgot what, uh, what, you know, the main talking point where, uh, where, but it is kind of like a lot of like, it's it almost like it, it's a primer. If you care about games and you care about games, uh, the, the condition in which games are both uh, created and, uh, you know, distributed and uh, used and enjoyed and consumed, 
but you don't you never really really thought too much about about you know socialism or what a different economic system could be uh well that's that's a, that's meant to be a prime a primer to sort of like uh, uncover that sort of intersection between two potential interests it's uh that's not something that i don't think that people think about you know a lot and I'm curious to, you know, bring it into the democratic socialism simulator. When people play these types of games, what do you think, you know, the impact is uh, for the player? I think it, it depends on the game. Um, I made like maybe like 30 or something projects in the last uh, 15 plus years. And at least in my mind, they all have their own sort of like agenda. And some of them are a little bit more, you know, interventionist, where is something happening? And here's a game that is sort of commenting and being part of that conversation. Some others are maybe a little bit more personal and some others are more like uh, formal experiments and some others are, um, you know, more, more dealing with the language uh, of games in general. Mm. I think Democratic Socialism Simulator had uh, a few... A few goal in my mind uh, it was obviously like related to the primaries that were happening uh, at that point, uh, more or less a year ago. Uh, the democratic primaries and uh, you know the concrete possibility of having a democratic socialist as a front runner for the Democrats, or like you know like a, at the very least a, a realistic uh, possibility that uh, of Bernie Sanders being uh, uh, being the candidate, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I wasn't particularly sure that it was going to happen, and that's why it's not the Bernie Sanders simulator. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, in the in the original uh, one, one of the ideas I played around was, uh, oh, maybe there are like three kinds of scenarios. There is a Bernie Sanders sort of like um, anthropomorphic animal representing Sanders, and another one representing AOC uh, that is more like uh, you know five, ten years in the future and things like that. So it's not super uh, tied to that particular political cycle, but it is uh, mm-hmm. kind of grounded in uh, essentially Bernie Sanders' uh, program, which is uh, a bit of a summary of all the potential things that can be done, uh, kind of like right now, or it should be done right now. I published a spreadsheet with all the events that are happening in the game, and uh, there are a lot of links to the official program. So there, there was like a very concrete, a very simple um, mm. goal that was, uh, oh, this is this is a, a way to familiarize with some of the proposals that are already on the table, that are essentially like within the political realm, within the overtone window, if you if you will, mm-hmm. of to, you know 2020, uh, early 2020. You know, I really appreciated um, playing this as someone who pays attention to politics and is aware of a lot of these policy proposals and stuff. Um, it it hit differently seeing it in the game <laughs> and explained in such simple but effective ways, like the way that your economic advisor explains offshore tax havens and how we in the United States could uh, enact policy to to really close those loopholes and have the wealthy pay their fair share. You know, that was explained extraordinarily well. And I also appreciated that it didn't immediately kick in because in real life, it wouldn't immediately kick in. It would take some time for these reforms to actually have some kind of impact on our budget. How did you uh, approach that? Was it, you know, were you more interested in teaching folks or were you more interested in giving them the information that they need so they understand the decision? That might be a little bit of a two, like two, nuance of a question, but I, I see a distinction. Yeah, I think uh, the game doesn't exactly have a message. I mean, it doesn't have like a very precise message. The message is in some extent that spreadsheet, the whole like uh, kind of like takes uh, on each single policies and what they could be doing uh, in a very qualitative way, not mm. in a quantitative way, because the numbers are just like, uh, you know, made up, obviously. But yeah, the idea is to was to more than uh, like you know showing you oh look if you do this uh, the society gets better. That's not that's not really the point because uh, society in the game is whatever I decide to be right. So I can kind of like create all sort of relationship within the game that show you the effects. But the the idea is that like given. Uh, given a player that is already essentially agreeing uh, with uh, with the general idea, <laughs> it's not a coincidence that I, I, I called it um, 
you know, I call it democratic socialism simulator. And uh, I put a little bit of a price tag instead of releasing it online. I kind of wanted to preach to the choir in this particular instance. And uh, the, the idea was to uh, show some of the challenges that a transition, a democratic transition to democratic socialism could present in a very qualitative ways. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, for example, like, uh, sure, we have like uh, lofty plans about, you know, like uh, uh, canceling student debt or uh, universal health care and things like that. Probably like either some like back of the napkin, um, you know, calculations uh, while while doing research and uh, like there's no way that we can accomplish all of these in uh, you know in two mandates or something because they are just like a bit too expensive uh <laughs> you know like a major you know infrastructure or a whole like we are talking about like uh, maybe like 15 20 years uh, in of time frame so it's not just like it wouldn't have been just like you know bernie sanders it's, it, it will be like several democratic <laughs> uh you know presidents that are continuing uh, in that in that trajectory to uh, anyway, so like there are some things to, to choose and to prioritize. And then there is uh, the general sort of, um, I would say, um, the general contingencies that are emerging, uh, regardless of, you know, what your plans are on paper. So you can, uh, you can be totally in favor of that particular reform, but that particular reform might not happen or might not happen immediately or might happen in the bad moment in which you don't, you don't have uh, you know, enough revenues to, to make it happen. And I thought that the sort of like the reins, uh, the sort of like the card-based uh, uh, random event or like semi-random event system uh, was a good, um, a good way to uh, represent and simplify this, this essentially the messiness of the world. One thing that really stood out to me when I was playing it was the sort of like unexpected consequences. Like I kind of went in and was like, all right, let's do socialism. And then like, you know, halfway through or like, or like a term or whatever. And like something just pops up and it's like, oh, you know, because you did this, now this is happening. And then like oh, the cards that like didn't allow you to make a choice. And then like it would just like move voters back and forth no matter what, you know, happened. Yeah, I think where I was going was that it was like a a very sobering experience where I was like, oh, okay, this is sort of like what that work would look like in a way that I don't think we often like sit down and think about. A lot of times it just feels like pie in the sky sort of stuff. And it's like, what do the, the actual steps look like to get there? How did that sort of like work out in the development of the game? Yeah, so, well, I didn't want to make a kind of like a power fantasy, right? Uh, and it's a bit within uh, within the genre, like the the, um, the, the format of the game uh, based on this uh, series called Reigns, uh, which is in turn based on uh, kind of like the Tinder interface. Uh, it's pretty much about like a multiple answer, like a yes and no, swipe left and right. And so uh, there is a certain effortlessness in that particular interaction. You don't have to really like work that hard. You, are, you have like a good deal of power and you're able to pass laws that will be like absolutely impossible to pass in the United States because <laughs> of the, um, you know, the way the, uh, the system is always in a, you know, almost like stalemate by design. But still, like I didn't like I, I wanted to be like somewhat misleading in that sense. You have like a great a great agency and uh, kind of like an effortless way to change things. But then, like there are uh, there is a pushback. Obviously, it's not just like going through a, a laundry list of things that would be cool. Um, so, like obviously, the the you know the capital, the capitalists uh, will uh, start to push back. Uh, will start to kind of like. Uh, sabotage you essentially your own party member more like a moderate democrat will start to essentially sabotage you and obviously since it's a democratic socialism uh simulation uh, you have to deal with the you know the electoral dimension of that the fact that half of your voters are uh, have like a mixed like have like different values potentially and and they already start not liking you essentially so you have to win them over by passing popular um um popular programs but also sometimes performing as uh, maybe less radical than you are mm. yeah i i found the the parts where you have to decide 
um, about your inauguration theme, about whether or not you're going to go shoot a gun. And if you do go shoot the gun, what kind of gun it's going to like, those types of things didn't have any impact on policy really, but it's that kind of performative nature of American politics that everyone has to participate in that I do think is really overlooked. Um, one thing, uh, and I, I briefly mentioned this earlier that I, <laughs> I guess what I, I didn't see the spreadsheet before I played the game. In fact, I'm just learning of, of the spreadsheet because I've been trying to play the game differently to see what all the different outcomes could be. Um, yeah, that's for you then. <laughs> <laughs> and I, uh, I love that you put in the military coup and I have to ask, given recent real life events, um, you know, is, is that something that you would think of as a real possibility um, if there were to be a democratic socialist candidate and then president, um, you know, what is the likelihood of some kind of coup or thing or, or something like that in your perspective? I, I know that we don't actually know, um, but it seems yeah, a lot yeah. more likely now than it would have three weeks ago. Right. Yeah. At that point, a, a year ago was the, the I guess the, the reference was uh, you know uh, Chile uh, under Salvador Allende, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Allende was uh, just essentially a democratic socialist. Chile was uh, you know a relatively advanced economy. Uh, was not like the typical sort of like agrarian uh, or like um, still feudal economic system that uh, that we have plenty of examples of, you know, communist countries that are starting from that, mostly agrarian, mostly like uh, under-industrialized. No, Chile was actually pretty advanced. They had, a, a, I would say, like a Bernie Sanders-like president, meaning it was like a socialist, but definitely not aligned with the totalitarian communist regimes. And uh, and it had like a lot of popular support, but still like it was you know it was a, a big challenge, and so like that's kind of like the example that was obviously thinking at that point. But also, yeah, sure. Now, like a, a year later, and after you know, like a, a, essentially a failed coup, uh, I've been thinking. I was just joking the other day that had Bernie Sanders been the president elect at this point, I think things would have been played you know w- would have played out very differently. You know, I think at this point we will be inaugurating the QAnon shaman as, uh, you know, as president <laughs> uh, with, with bipartisan support uh, and, uh, you know, skyrocketing, uh, uh, you know, skyrocketing uh, stocks. Um, I think that that's, that's what, what, will, what will have happened. Yeah, hard to disagree <laughs> with that <laughs> after, after watching everything in D.C., yeah, I'm I'm uh, trying to remember what the coup uh, like. There is a there's the whole like coup thread. You have to do a, a couple of things wrong. I mean, you have to really be. In, uh, you have to alienate a lot of uh, people, obviously, especially in the military. But there are also like a few other things that, um, like I would say, like security uh, issues that you you might have to to overlook. Yeah. Yeah, I was handing out a lot of free stuff. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, destroyed a lot of grandmother's, uh, nest eggs apparently in the process by refusing to bail out the stock market. And, uh, it, it was untenable for me after a certain point. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the cool situation is it happens when you have like essentially like inflation. So like your, uh, you, your socialist is not working uh, on a very like material economic way. And uh, you also have uh, um, you're not like you're not resigning, you're refusing to resign and uh, you don't have enough, uh, I think, like kind of like union power to counterbalance that. I think there can be a situation in which there is a coup like situation in which uh, that is essentially fought back by workers Mm. uh, just based on, uh, you know, like certain policies, policies that you passed that favor unionization. Mm, I might have to try to go for that one. They uh, politely. I feel like some some branches might be like very hard to like. It might not happen at all. Uh, but to me, it's like that's that's the model. It doesn't really matter too much if like you know only one uh, one player out of a hundred sees it. Yeah. So with that, I want to just talk about some of your other games really quickly. Um, One of the things that I've really appreciated as a a new executive director and someone who's also trying to get into Dungeons and Dragons is uh, your Rules and (laughs) Roberts game. Um, 
it essentially teaches folks how to use Robert's rules of order. And I would just love to hear a little bit about, you know, why you decided to do that, what your inspiration was. It's just such an interesting project. Rules and Roberts is a kind of like a spoof of uh, a Dungeons and Dragons uh, role-playing game. At least on the surface, it uses the same sort of like a, a theme of a high fantasy theme and uh, the same uh, lore, essentially, and some of the same branding. But it's more of a story game, uh, you know, like a story-based role-playing games, meaning that there are not a lot of stats. It's something that you play relatively quickly. There, there are not, not a lot of rules. And uh, the goal of the, the like my goal of the, for, for this role playing game is essentially to make uh, uh, an artifact that can teach you a little bit uh, about um, Robert's rule of order. Robert's rule of order is a set of parliamentary procedures that are used by a lot of organizations. Uh, and there's, it's basically a set of rules for uh, collective decision making. It's a way to, you know, to speak uh, in terms and to uh, make decisions all together beyond, uh, you know, just voting. It's like, how do you make a proposal? How do you amend that proposal? How do you discuss and, and deliberate? And then obviously there are, there are also rules for voting as well. Basically, it's, it's, it's merging these two worlds. So one is the um, kind of like democratic decision making and uh, like meetings, essentially. And the other one is uh, another kind of like rule based world, which is the D&D world. And uh, the conceit of the game is basically that you're uh, adventurers, uh, you're doing the typical dungeon crawling, crawling thing. But um, every decision has to be discussed uh, using that process, even decisions that are individual, meaning that um, like typically, I mean, typically in uh, role playing games, there is a kind of like a a cooperative situation in which uh, the adventurers are making decisions together, deciding, you know, usually by consensus to, you know, kill the dragon or whatever. Uh, but the difference here is that these rules are formalized. You cannot, you, you, you will never be able to say, oh, I cast a spell, even if it's your own uh, exclusive initiative. Uh, in uh, Rules and Robbers, you have to make a motion to cast a spell and then debate uh, what the pro and cons uh, and eventually have people amend your spell and uh, eventually you end up uh, you know with a vote and uh, your companions can override your decision and your proposal to cast a spell i love this idea i think that it is <laughs> just a really fun twist <laughs> on uh you know what i know about dungeons and dragons we're very excited to be using it as we figure out whether or not we're going to start playing dungeons and dragons <laughs> <laughs> The idea for this game kind of came up during a kind of like an excruciating meeting, uh, um, a d- local chapter of DSA, and I sort of like realized or like I had this vision that perhaps a lot of these people in the room that were in, in the room with me and they were like very almost like enjoying uh, this this kind of grueling process were probably role players. Uh, they were probably like really into kind of like nerding out and uh, rules and stats. Uh, but uh, and so it kind of like started as a joke I just wanted to make it like you know like an image uh, uh, like an inside joke image Uh, but then I started thinking about it and I was like hey maybe this can be an actual game there might be a gameplay here and maybe there can be a kind of like an educational aspect (laughs) in this uh, terrible uh, cursed idea Uh, because you know like maybe it's it's important to (laughs) Maybe it's important to specify that this this is a terrible idea. The game, the the game rule of rules and Roberts. I, I sh- you shouldn't really play that. I mean, you can play it just uh, just for the lulls, uh, but it, it, chances are that you're not gonna end uh, a campaign with it. it depending on how uh, strict you are with the enforcement of the rules, it can be. It might take you, you know, like two hours to make a decision of whether whether or not you want to open a chest. Um, <laughs> that sounds like democracy to me. Yeah, it sounds like democracy. So it is. It is a bit of like you know a self-deprecating joke on uh, you know excessive democracy, but it's also about kind of like figuring out exactly how to modulate these processes because uh, there is definitely um, 
I, I think the Robert's rules of order are very useful in uh, certain specific situations, like when you have like large meetings. But if you start to apply it a, a little bit too granularly, it can really like feel bureaucratic. It can really alienate a lot of people. It can uh, alienate people who don't have a lot of time to just like follow processes. Uh, it, can, it can alienate newcomers who are just like showing up for the first time and they're like, whoa, you know, and so so these are like, I think, like pretty serious, you know, to me, to me, there are serious issue in organization is how to conduct uh, these internal decisions of organizations on democratic organizations. And so I wanted it to be kind of like reflected in this game. So if mm-hmm. you're like a really uh, um, kind of like, I, w- I wouldn't say fascistic, but if you're if you're like really like obsessed with rules, uh, it, it, you can really kind of like hijack the whole the whole process of the whole adventure. But then there are like other sort of like outcomes of having uh, uh, the system. For example, this is probably the only role-playing game that you can play uh, with any number of people. You can uh, theoretically have, you know, like a hundred players. And I kind of like tested it on Zoom, on lectures and things like that. You can have like a hundred players playing this thing because the system is uh, specifically conceived for, for large meetings, right? And uh, even if the experience of playing it might be uh, particularly awful, (laughs) this might be one of the few games that I made that uh, actually work. Uh, uh, Like it it produces an effect, which is to essentially learn those rules or or at least like have a general idea of how the rule of order work. Um, Because, you know, like I don't really believe necessarily in the educational power of video games or games in general. I don't think games really like teach you that much. But one thing that definitely teach you is their own rules. That's that's the pretty yeah pretty easy point to make right so yeah. so if mm. the rules of the game is what you're trying to teach like in this case then it might actually work it might actually make sense. Hmm. There's another aspect of the game that is uh, also like uh, related to to the theme essentially the it is not just like uh, you know co- like simply applying those rules but it was trying to I guess like apply some twists on the tra- uh, on the traditional. Uh, tropes uh, of high fantasy, essentially. Uh, so everything in the game is rethemed uh, in a kind of with a social justice band, essentially. You know, like uh, there are things like things that ha- has always been super problematic about fantasy, like uh, the, the mm-hmm. treatment of race, for example. Like, oh, there are some races that are, uh, are essentially coding uh, actually existing races, uh, and they have like inherent characteristics. And so, if you are in that, that particular race, uh, that you know, like changes your your numbers and whatever. So those are the things that uh, the reason why I never really care too much about fantasy, I think, is like you know kind of regressive uh, as a as a genre. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, like so it's trying to tackle also some of the of these things and all the campaigns. There are there is a set of you know very sh- simple campaigns that are also like social justice of, or oriented. So it's meant for it's meant for uh, essentially activists and uh, you know friends that are sharing the same kind of values and. Uh, you know, uh, making fun of, you know, their own uh, miserable situation and uh, the miserable situation of the world. Yeah, you know, this might be a good vetting game for adding new people into our gaming clan, which is, you know, we we don't tolerate any kind of hate of any kind. And there's some new people that I've been playing with recently, <laughs> and I'm not so sure what's going on with them. And so this might be a good way to test that out. <laughs> hey, I I think like you are if you are uh, you know comfortable with you know chatting for for a long time, it can be probably can be pretty fun if you are like a role player, like to as, as a you know like a, um, as a podcast uh, in a podcast format. I'm thinking of the um, again like the Chapel Trap House uh, podcast that they did uh, uh, of themselves playing uh, um, uh, playing some like uh, Cthulhu game. Uh, but they are like uh, role playing as uh, you know, like actual kind of like Lovecraft kind of racist, uh, like a phrenologist or whatever, and they are investigating Pizzagate. Uh, that's pretty funny. <laughs> Got quite a bit of entertainment. We might have to try that out. It might be a, a good new format for us. <laughs> I'm down. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. Well, I have one more question. My usual last question. What's next? 
Uh, a game that I've been working on in the last month or so is um, a bit of a follow-up of, of the Democratic Socialism Simulator. It's not a it's not a sequel. It might have some uh, similar, you know, visual elements. It might be in the same uh, universe, uh, so to speak. But it is more of a uh, logistics uh, and economic planning simulator. Uh, mm. So it's a bit of um. Uh, I guess like a back to the roots of uh, games that I used to make like uh, a long time ago. I made a couple of like um, successful uh, flash, uh, flash wise successful games like the McDonald's video games and they are essentially management games. So um, in uh, my sort of like in my previous lives, um, I used management games to talk about capitalism and talk about, you know, the problems of capitalism. In the McDonald's Mm -hmm. video games, you're basically like managing uh, uh, this corporation and uh, confronting the various unethical issues of the production process of McDonald's. Another one was oligarchy that is you're essentially exploring and, uh, you know, creating like a vertically integrated oil company and uh, also deals with environmental devastation and uh, how uh, big oil essentially affects politics uh, and things like that. So um, I always use this sort of genre as a way to look at capitalism and to be like, hey, like, look at all the bad things that capitalism <laughs> is. But I'm kind of like curious now to sort of like uh, um, sort of like see from another perspective and see like, OK, so what would be like, uh, how would you plan an economy or how would you? Uh, transition from a capitalist economy to a you know post-capitalist more like democratically controlled economy that is also sustainable uh you know in a democratic way meaning like not through like you know a revolution that you know seizes mm-hmm. immediately like uh, overnight all the all the you know all the means of production and so that's kind of like what i'm trying to grapple with right now how do you make a um um, essentially a management game that doesn't uh, that is maybe about optimization it's about kind of like um, creating a well-oiled machine like many uh, management games but it's mm-hmm. also like uh, uh, introducing uh, an element of conflict and an element of sort of like pushback uh, and uh, you know uh, capital strike capitalists that are essentially like uh, abandoning their factories uh, or uh, you have you might have like extremists uh, you know sabotaging you and things like that so how do you um, represent that through a management uh, in a systemic way so that's kind of like what I'm what I'm working on um, yeah if that turns into something real, I cannot wait to play it. That sounds exactly up my alley. Um, and frankly, a lot a lot of your games are. I've really enjoyed discovering them and diving into them. Uh, and we'll be sure to link all of your games in the show notes, uh, conveniently via one link, not uh, 45, as I counted, actually, um, <laughs> that you have on your, on your website. Okay, well, thank you so much for spending time with us today. This has been really insightful uh, and... I, I just can't get enough of your work and I'm excited to see what happens in the future. All right. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, that was a show. That was a show. Thank you so, so much to Paolo for being our special guest. That was a great conversation. It was a great. I really learned a lot. Mm-hmm. It was dope. Um, definitely go check out all of the Mullet Industria games mm-hmm. in the show notes. We're linking them. Right there. Where they always are. Indeed. You know the deal. If you enjoyed the show as much as we enjoyed the show, tell a gamer friend. Tell two. Tell as many gamer friends as you'd like. Yes. Please rate, comment, review, subscribe. <laughs> on your platform of choice and all that jazz and a special shout out to our patrons yes nerdy cody abner sarah emma and enya thank you all so much for your support thank you well i guess we'll see everyone in about two weeks we'll see y'all soon deuces bye-bye